You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Body IO FM. This is your host, Kiefer. Unfortunately, our co host today had an emergency with a patient, so Dr. Rocky Patel won't be joining us for this podcast. Um, and real quick, I just want to go through, luckily we have one sponsor, Hylete Athletic Wear. Uh, again, I highly recommend checking out these guys. There's a discount code on my website for 25% off your first purchase. So, you know, check them out and, you know, we'll just get right into this. Uh, last time we had uh, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino on our show and we talked about cancer and ketogenic diet and uh, basically how cancer metabolism works and how a ketogenic diet can circumvent that and allow for the treatment, uh, a better treatment in cancer possibly um, and the current research that's going on there. And today I thought we'd get him back on and talk about performance because he's one of the, you know, really there's not a lot of people out there who will study both health effects and performance effects. So I thought it'd be great to get that perspective on this show. So, uh, you know, Good to have you back, Dom. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's just always great to a, be here. Yeah, de- definitely a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I'm going to jump right in because on uh, a pretty recent podcast, I had made the statements that, you know, there, there's research showing that ketogenic diets, uh, you know, strict ketogenic diets can inhibit mTOR activation. And, you know, a lot of the audience knows. Uh, mTOR is one of the regulated pathways that needs to be upregulated for muscle growth, uh, cell repair, tissue repair, all those kind of different things. So I had said it looks like there's a very, very strong possibility that trying to gain muscle mass or hypertrophy on a ketogenic diet could be really difficult if even in some cases not possible. And and of course, at the moment, there's no published data on this. Um, But I know you've you've um, you've been working on exploring this. And I I thought maybe we could talk about it a little bit and see what your thoughts are on a ketogenic diet used for hypertrophy. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And no one has done, you know, definitively the 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 right study that people are looking for to answer this question. you know, as, as it pertains to weight resistance, training, powerlifting, bodybuilding, uh, no one really has done a comprehensive study to show through looking at specifically strength, you know, performance and body composition alterations, and then correlating that very tightly with, uh, with blood work to, to, to confirm that, you know, the participants in the, in a ketogenic diet group were in sustained ketosis. That's, that's really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that has not been done. And that's actually an ongoing study, uh, that I'm a part of at the university of Tampa. And the results that I've seen so far are really encouraging. Um, So you would think, you know, with a ketogenic diet, you definitely have a suppression of insulin. And, you know, it's really that suppression of insulin and and to some extent the the depletion of stored glycogen, mostly in the liver, uh, that 
drives hepatic ketogenesis. So a decrease in circulating insulin would, as you mentioned, decrease you know IGF-1 and, and mTOR and, and downstream factors. Uh, and that, that definitely occurs. Uh, but the adaptations to resistance training, uh, it may be another maybe another topic. I think just from my experience and from what I've seen in the lab and kind of anecdotally that the muscle actually becomes more sensitive in guys who train in particular on a low carb diet there, they have, uh, adaptations. The muscle can adapt better to, uh, resistance training and, and there's different ways, I guess, to describe, you know, characterize adaptation. But one example is just, you know, they recover faster between workouts. So inflammation goes down. Markers of inflammation typically go down with a low-carb diet if one sustains it. And I think this benefits, you know, recovery. And um, and I just think that that has a, a carryover effect for more of a long-term study, especially if the guys are advanced athletes. And uh, I think it's really important that, you know, when studies are designed that, that the, uh, the level of athletic performance, whether it be aerobic or uh, bodybuilding, be a major factor in recruiting the guys or else your data is going to be all over the place. And we're doing a study right now that, you know, took that into account. And the results that I've seen so far, the preliminary data suggests that you can definitely, without a doubt, gain muscle on a ketogenic diet um, and lose fat simultaneously. So that's about all I can say now. I think ISSN conference <laughs> will, uh, will highlight some of, some of the, the results from this study, mm -hmm. and I'm sure a publication will be coming out soon after that. But in progress now, kind of coming towards an end, is a what I guess you would call a comparison between a keto and a Western diet, uh, relatively high, high in carbs, um, with advanced athletes that are resistance training. And, and these guys had to, they were recruited uh, because they met uh, criteria where they can deadlift and squat a certain percentage of their of their body weight, so they were pretty advanced athletes going into this. And uh, and then the blood markers for ketones were all measured, and that was taken into account to ensure that they were in nutritional ketosis. Okay, yeah, that, it, this is you know one of the kind of what I would call missing link studies at the moment because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's just a lot, you don't know, you, you know, if you, that was one question I had is resistance training, the adaptations that your body is going to try to go through during resistance training. Uh, is that enough to override some particular nutritional signals? Uh, like for example, you know, mTOR being downregulated in an at rest population on a ketogenic diet. Well, that might not mean anything for somebody training or a trained athlete. Uh, I know a lot of times with car backloading, well, almost every time, people almost instantly get stronger simply because, you know, without that carbohydrate load before training, you know, I know their muscles are more sensitive to adrenaline. You get a larger uh, adrenaline spike when training begins and the muscles are more sensitive to it. So you get this kind of tri-factor around just your muscles ability to react to 
the catecholamines in comparison mm-hmm. to when you have, you know, insulin or carbohydrates interfering with that. Uh, so, you know, I, I would expect on a ketogenic diet, even on carbonate, people usually get stronger, which always, it, at first it amazed me, but as I learned more, it, it kind of made sense. Um, and I've had a few athletes gain a little bit of muscle when dieting down for a contest. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. I use cyclic ketogenic diets. So, you know, once a week they're getting a carbohydrate mm-hmm. load. And that, of course, skews everything. And I'm not, not able to really do intense blood work during those, those protocols to know what's going on. And I definitely can't exclude people to the same level and get, you know, the, the right population to make sure it's kind of a homogeneous population that I'm looking at. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to the results of this study. This, this should be really interesting and, and could, you know, take... You know, already I think there's a big shift in performance nutrition in a lot of different sports. And the one vanguard of the old way really is bodybuilding and powerlifting. Those things have been somewhat resistant uh, to looking at new dieting paradigms. I think that's one reason carb backloading was so successful because it was one that kind of married the old school with the new school. So people didn't have to completely give up carbohydrates. Um, but they still saw some benefits from po- being at least low carb in the first half of the day. It's, it's hard to say if that population was ketogenic in the first half of the day. I have my doubts that they ever really experienced uh, ketosis to any great degree. Yeah. Uh, so uh, really, really interesting study. When do, you, when do you think you guys will have that data kind of pooled and analyzed? Uh, it's being – it's – in the process of coming to an end now, and then uh, I think we may have blood and to analyze and, and uh, kind of like post analysis stats and things like that. But uh, I guess the the presentation of the data, the nearest time point would be uh, the ISSN conference in Clearwater, Florida. So, but there may be you know some there may be some data coming out before that. I guess. Uh, so I have to see, I actually haven't, I've just seen bits of the data, but I haven't seen it as a whole. So okay. uh, I will definitely keep you updated on it. And, uh, and I think it may answer some of the questions, uh, a lot of questions that, that people have, you know, about the ketogenic diet and, and if you can actually gain muscle while on it, um, especially if you're an advanced athlete, you know, you can take a relatively naive person and put them on the right training program and they can gain muscle. Um, now this wasn't kind of designed for, I guess what you would say, uh, like a competition prep diet. So there Mm -hmm. wasn't any kind of restriction of calories. Uh, calories were actually, you know, uh, it was just an ad libitum diet, you know, Mm -hmm. just eat as much as you want sort of, but when you do Carbohydrate and most of your clients are is the main goal uh, weight loss or strength gains or just simply body composition? Uh, it or it really depends. Do- yeah, they're all across the board. Yeah. So I, I've worked with just about every type yeah. of athlete, and I kind of try to tune okay. it for that. For for contest prep, it it really is about um, they're looking at specifically aesthetics. So you know, trying to make sure that the muscles stay full, uh, strength is not a concern. Uh, but getting as lean as possible. And yeah, and I think I was going to say that carb backloading from my perspective is 
kind of important. Uh, even if you're like a key, a fan of the ketogenic diet, and you would want to do that if your your goal was to to gain as much strength and size as possible. Yeah, you definitely want to do That's some form of carb backloading. Pretty much, carb backloading is the default diet for powerlifters and strongman competitors. Yeah. And even that's you know, the next study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even, you know, that's kind of a, we have to do. A, a variation of that for say someone doing mixed martial arts. Um, yeah. Again, you know, I, carbs always kind of stay in there. And then even for endurance athletes, I use carb night in quite a different way than I prescribe in the book. But, you know, I found if they train in a ketogenic state, so very, very low carb, high fat, um, you know, kind of meat, mid-level protein and then load them with carbohydrates appropriately before an event, uh, their performance really skyrockets compared to what they could do previously. Um, we're talking about, and none of these are, you know, high performance marathon runners say, but, you know, kind of mid-level, they've been struggling, and they'll, they'll literally shave a minute per mile off their time uh, just by ratcheting mm -hmm. back their training to less than 50% of what they're used to doing it on a ketogenic diet and then using carbs appropriately, you know, so on, on event day, I, I think there's a lot of utility in carbohydrates and that's, that's kind of been just, you know, my premise from mm -hmm. the beginning is there's really a way to use food in a high performance way. Uh, and we just, yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions about how to do it correctly. Unfortunately, in that yeah, in that case, the scenario you're talking about, I, I think, and you know, I talked to a number of triathletes and mar I call them like short, short duration marathon, short marathons. Uh, when you're fat adapted or keto adapted, then you do add uh, glucose into the mix or some form of carbohydrate. Uh, you, when you're exercising, your insulin's kind of going to be stay suppressed if you mm -hmm. don't go too crazy on carbs, and then you will carbs will be like sort of the alternative fuel, if you will. Right. You know, I think of, I describe ketones as an alternative fuel for the brain and, and the heart and peripheral tissues, you know, muscle including that. And, uh, you know, so the ketones become an alternative fuel to glucose on the ketogenic diet. But when you're really keto adapted and, and you, you throw carbs into the mix, it's, uh, you know, a keto adapted athlete is really oxidizing a lot of fat and you can show that Jeff Bullock has shown that, you know, scientifically and then throwing carbs, carbs kind of become the alternative fuel. And, and I think especially in ultra, you know, really intense exercise, a little bit goes a long way as far as being anti-catabolic to yeah. a little bit of carbs. Yeah. It's funny yeah. because like so, on event day, I basically tell them to eat nothing, you know, on their actual event day, this is for marathon, yeah. so it's not like an Ironman competitor who m might need some, you know, intra-competition nutrition. But, you know, for a marathon runner on event day, they just have water and their performance goes up. And yeah. Yeah, my, my thought always was, yeah, they're highly fat adapted, so they're able to, you know, burn a lot of fat for most of the event. And if that starts to deplete or as their adrenaline levels go up during the event or their stress levels then they have access to all of that intramuscular glycogen that's right there and ready to be utilized as well. Uh, it's kind mm -hmm. of, yeah, you know, that makes the, sense. Yeah. The, the 10,000 foot view that I, you know, describe it as, but again, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have the, the data to show like, is there a shift? When does a shift happen? Uh, and, and th that actually brings up a, an interesting question for me. You just 
Um, you had just said, you know, ketones are an alternative fuel source for peripheral tissue. And uh, you said even skeletal muscle. But I was looking into research, and this, this was a compilation of research across all mammalian species, including humans. And one thing that struck me was that as you become, say, fat adapted or uh, adapted to a ketogenic diet, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that, you know, say the heart and the diaphragm and a lot of peripheral tissue will upregulate, I think it's 3-hydroxybutyrate dehydrogenase, uh, which is mm -hmm. necessary for utilize, um, energy utilization of the ketones. But in skeletal yeah. muscle tissue, there was a large down regulation of that enzyme. Um, so, so my curiosity was, as you become more, quote unquote, fat adapted, is it really that your muscles are depending more and more on fatty acids and really you don't have access to that alternative energy source as you go down that path? Um, is, that, is that a correct understanding or am I, did I miss something there when we're looking at athletics? Yeah, I, I think we have to think about a spectrum. So it does occur across the spectrum. Um, I think, you know, over time, you do get, uh, I, I view ketones as, you know, the body is trying to, uh, the brain, over time, the brain's utilization of ketones will increase. And that's an area that I'm interested in. So proportionally, if you start a ketogenic diet at first, the transport uh, via the monocarboxylic acid transporter across the blood-brain barrier may be somewhat limited. And that, that, is, that transporter is upregulated over time. So you have a greater proportion of the central nervous system using ketones as you become more uh, keto-adapted. And as you mentioned, there is kind of like some evidence to suggest, I don't know if it's in athletes, uh, and I think athletes may be a different story, but in sedentary people or animals, or you, there is kind of a downregulation of the enzymatic pathways that would allow for ketones to be used as an oxidative fuel in skeletal muscle. Mm -hmm. uh, but to my knowledge, it hasn't really been done in elite athletes. And I think the data that I've seen that I'm aware of shows that uh, if you take a, an oral form of ketones, uh, like a ketone ester, and you take couch potatoes and people and sedentary people and advanced athletes, the, the performance will actually not be increased in, in people who are not uh, athletes or, or keto adapted. But in, in, in athletes or keto adapted people, they will perform much better. So I think... Hmm. Uh, athletes do bounce in and out of ketosis because you have post-exercise ketosis right. kind of part, part of training. So they are, they're kind of hardwired and their body is set up to use ketones more efficiently. And, uh, but I think in a, in a sedentary person over time, I think there may be a, a, a decrease in skeletal muscle utilization of ketones to spare it for the central nervous system and maybe the heart too, right. uh, because these are the body will prioritize that pretty much always. Um, right. Uh, and as far as peripheral tissues, yeah, I think 
there's basically all organs can most organs can use ketones except the liver the liver is a producer of ketones but lacks some of the important enzymes for uh to be able to derive energy from ketones like succinyl coa transferase you know it's mm -hmm. it's lacking in the liver so it can't use ketones to jet and and actually cancer cells they, they lack a number of enzymes like succinyl coa transferase that would allow the cancer cells to use the ketones for fuel so in, in a way they're similar to the liver in that the liver is a, is a, the producer of ketones, mm -hmm. but can't use it. But most of the other organs can. So maybe maybe this is uh, you just said. You know, we know one interesting thing from those studies is even though it decreases in skeletal muscle tissue, and there there might be a chance that they're still usable there during athletic events. Um, in the heart, that enzyme is actually upregulated, and we've seen some from from some mouse studies that if you have uh, you know the heart of effectively runs more efficiently on ketones. So you can get, uh, I believe it's higher stroke volume per beat at the same energy level as before. Uh, so you, so it, it's running more efficiently. Is it possible that, you know, there is a downregulation of ketone utilization in skeletal muscle tissue and upregulation in the heart and diaphragm, which then allows greater oxygen transport to the muscles and then they can, you know, ha have more access to their oxidative pathways. Because we also know from exercise, you yeah. know, the, the people who are really, um, you know, the, the, the strong performers, whether it's, you know, endurance, even uh, bodybuilding, uh, CrossFit, all those things, you know, it's really that they, they've got a lack of that anabolic reserve. So they're highly, highly oxidative. Uh, could it just be, you know, that extra ability to get oxygen into the muscles and have a greater utilization mm -hmm. of both fatty acids and, and glucose through the oxidative pathway? Or do you, do you think that could make yeah. the difference? That, that's a good, um, that's an interesting question. I think it would involve some pretty advanced metabolomics to do it, but with the tools available today, it's possible. And, and I do think that with ketones, there are a number of, um, mechanisms at play that would enhance oxygen delivery to skeletal muscle and, and then, you know, ultimately enhance mitochondrial uh, beta oxidation of, of fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And uh, we find in, in the lab, uh, we're doing, we do work with neurological diseases and cancer, but we also do wound healing. And we have an ischemic model of wound healing. And what we see is that in the state of ketosis, there's a dilation of blood vessels and greater perfusion of the tissue. Uh, in this case, we're looking at we're looking at uh, skin, right? Mm -hmm. So you see a dilation of blood vessels, and we use like a Doppler blood flow uh, analysis uh, mm -hmm. to look at uh, blood flow. And ketosis uh, is a significant, and there's reports in published studies showing that I think 30 to 40 percent increase in blood flow to the brain. Uh, so the, the ketone induced increase in blood flow and, and, uh, and oxygen and oxygen and substrate delivery can be, uh, can be a, probably a major factor, perhaps the most important factor, you know, in delivering more oxygen, more substrate in the form of glucose and fatty acids to the muscle. So the, um, so the main effect could be due as you as you suggested, to just simply oxygen delivery, you know, in, in the heart especially, you do get a greater 
uh, hydraulic efficiency of the heart when you throw ketones into the mix. Sure, there's, those studies have been done. Right. Um, yeah, so I think I think one of the big, not not just simply a, a substrate for skeletal muscle, but having a, a signaling properties, and we don't really know how ketones are dilating blood vessels, or um, uh, but it's an area that I'm interested in because it can can even reverse some of the um, the uh, the ischemia that results from, for example, uh, age, age dependent or aging induced ischemic wounds. So with diabetic wounds are pretty common, uh, especially in older folks that are sedentary and it can reverse some of that. And that could be because when ketones are up, like glucose goes down Mm -hmm. and glucose tends to have an oxidizing effect in a way and making blood thicker. Uh, in someone who's older, who's has hyperglycemia, uh, the key there's, if you add an oral form of ketones and that's what we're doing now, we do ketogenic diet studies, but we're also doing ketone supplementation. The great, the more we elevate ketones, the, the lower we can get blood glucose and the greater perfusion we get to the tissue. So there's a very interesting interplay there. And we've done you know, uh, regression analysis to show that the more ketones we put into the system, the more we can suppress uh, glucose levels, probably hepatic glucose output and the greater perfusion we can have. And that's in our wound healing model, but I Mm -hmm. think it has implications for uh, oxygen delivery to skeletal muscle. Yeah, that that's actually really interesting, too, because then, you know, another possible mechanism, at, at least potentially in athletes and even just people trying to lose body fat. Um, could be increased blood flow to, you know, um, adipocyte tissue. Uh, you know, one, one thing we see is as uh, fat tissue accumulates, as circulation goes down, and, you know, that can be one of the factors that affect blood pressure. But if you were able to get higher blood flow, then I would imagine you can get a larger or a quicker clearance of the non-esterified fatty acids out of the fat bed. Uh, and, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've got some current research that shows the longer that stuff sits around in the fat bed, the more likely it is to be absorbed or reabsorbed and stored. So if you could get it out quicker, get it utilized for energy or, or what have you, um, I, I could see some benefits there as well. And that could be part of the explanation for some of the benefits we see, you know, literally within the first week or two weeks of somebody switch, somebody who's unhealthy switching to a ketogenic diet, you know, we see some pretty drastic changes. It's somewhat very short time course. Yeah. Th- yeah. That's interesting. I, I think, you know, with that, with the perfusion, you're also removing more lactate mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and lactate that becomes an interesting question too. Uh, Cause as you enhance oxidative phosphorylation, you kind of shift away from glycolysis. So you'll get less lactate production. Right. And I think the, the lactic acid threshold uh, would be higher in, in someone who's keto adapted. And mm-hmm. I think there's some evidence for that. Uh, um, so that's definitely another thing to look at, uh, blood lactate levels, something that we're going to start looking at. Um, so, and that's, that's what I think. I mean, I didn't mention it before, but I think a lot of the benefits of the ketogenic diet for for performance athletes with endurance exercises uh, results from just less lactate mm-hmm. being produced. Yeah, so that higher, high, high, 
higher lactic acid threshold, which, you know, translating yeah. that, it means lower anaer anaerobic reserve, which, you know, means higher aerobic yes. capacity, essentially. Yep. Um, yep. So, yeah, I'm, I keep coming back to this <laughs> hypertrophy thing a little bit. You know, I'm wondering if, um, did you guys, a couple things here. So I know that there's this, in the literature, it's often called um, the, mito the mitochondrial paradox because we see that uh, the maximum or the maximum cross-sectional area of a muscle fiber is linear related, linearly related to its mitochondrial density. Um, but exercises that we normally consider hypertrophic, uh, like resistance training and bodybuilding type activity actually will lower mitochondrial density where things that we think of as making muscles smaller like endurance training can increase mitochondrial density so is there you know is, is that another possible effect that you might see in somebody going for muscular gains if you know they've hit that cusp of where they've they've probably hit the best balance they can on a mixed diet with their mitochondrial density and their muscle fiber size, if we shift to a ketogenic diet, do we naturally get an upregulation of mitochondrial density, which could then allow the muscle fibers to gain larger cross-sectional area? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, a, a question where you yeah. a question where there was a pause before you started answering. I was I've been waiting for that for you know like our whole first <laughs> podcast and now this one. Yeah, instead of just spewing out a stream of consciousness on ketones, yeah. Uh, I am thinking about this a little bit, and just uh, more of what I see kind of anecdotally on some of the stuff, looking at uh, muscle ultrasound and cross-sectional area mm -hmm. with before and after ketogenic diet. I do see, especially in athletes that tend to spend a lot of time in the gym, like two hours or more. My workouts are real short, like 20 minutes, but, it, mm -hmm. but I, in guys that do a lot of muscle glycogen depleting workouts and are on a ketogenic diet, you know, they will definitely have a reduction in muscle glycogen and which may in some cases make the muscle appear harder and maybe more separation if they're, if it's really swollen to begin with. Uh, and that, that could account for, um, you know, a decrease in, in, uh, in density of the mitochondria, uh, in some of the, the biopsies that were looked at, I'm kind of reflecting back on a few studies where the animals were put on a ketogenic diet trained and then looked at, uh, I don't know if they looked at mitochondrial density, but, uh, right. I think they looked at mitochondrial function. So there's, there's a number of things that can be going on there uh, that could influence mitochondrial density, and it just could be the cell volume. Um, with, with hypertrophy, if you do resistance exercise you know, and you have uh, hypertrophy, it can kind of dilute the, the mitochondria in the muscle, and hypertrophy can happen pretty quick in, mm -hmm. in rodents and, and in humans. Right. And that hypertrophy may not be paralleled with an increase in mitochondrial biogenesis. So if, you know, you do a study and it may be our next study where we do, you know, muscle biopsies, it's, it wasn't in this study we're doing now, but you may actually see a decrease in mitochondrial density if there's, you know, significant hypertrophy and not compensatory increase in 
in mitochondrial mitochondrial and yeah which which would you would you know see in in uh in more endurance athletes mm-hmm. uh, okay. but yeah i was jeff volick is doing some work now and he was going to share some of the tissue and we we're going to we we're going to look at that but not in resistance training athletes okay yeah i was just thinking you know you and i that's what i'm not sure about on some of the research that I've looked at is if they tried to correct for that factor, did they try to correct for the effect of just if the muscle fiber, you know, has, um, has greater radius, essentially, if, you know, it's grown, then obviously you get just a natural dilution effect of the mitochondrial density because the volume's gone up. Um, so, you know, I would think you would have to correct for that with, with a slightly different parameter, maybe, you know, mitochondrial per unit length of the muscle fiber or something like that um so so that's what i wasn't sure if that was an effect that yeah you know if it is significant is there some way to utilize it and if it's not then you know forget it whatever happens happens yeah then you have you know these hybrid athletes that are kind of do a combination of training and and and, and you know uh triathletes that lift weights and mm-hmm. You know, a purely power lifter will be shifting the muscle towards more glycolytic efficiency, whereas maybe a a hybrid athlete, I don't know what that would be, maybe a CrossFit athlete or something, would have a combination of the two, would have uh, metabolic adaptations in the realm of greater oxidative capacity, but also uh, maybe a parallel increase in glycolytic efficiency, glycolytic enzymes and, you know, and, and... so you might be kind of a neutral effect on mitochondrial. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it may be a state dependent. I know athletes that train with weights really intense throughout the winter months, but then do more endurance stuff. So you would really have to, that would be an interesting study to just really look at kind of all three groups, like mm-hmm. complete power lifters <laughs> and then more hybrid athletes and then like ultra marathon runners and do yeah and do uh not only just you know just study them at under baseline normal diets but just to look what their adaptations would be to a ketogenic diet Mm -hmm. yeah that's just out of curiosity i mean we're talking about all the you know all these studies and that's you know one area obviously i would love to be into would would be doing some of this research you know i'm at heart i'm a scientist and i just always will be so not being able to have access to a lot of this stuff to be able to do these studies is, you know, always frustrating. But at the same time, you know, people are always, well, we need to study with this. We need to study this. And, you know, obviously that's true, but for your, your, let's, let's say the, the study that's wrapping up in Tampa with uh, bodybuilders, just, can you give us kind of a ballpark figure in the cost of running a study like that? Um, just so kind of people have yeah. a grasp on that when they just start spouting off, well, we've got to study that before we can say anything, you know, let's, let's put some numbers on this. So we understand what the cost of knowledge really is in this field. Yeah. We discussed a lot of right now, we, in the last 10 minutes, we discussed what would be a lot of interesting questions, you know, and you could come up with some relatively good experimental hypotheses, uh, the experiments that we just talked about would be about $4 million probably <laughs> to do all that. I was just yeah. a ballpark just mm-hmm. off the top of my head, just thinking of all the analysis that could be done. Uh, you know, and really 
funding for this kind of stuff is extremely limited. Uh, you know, I, I have funding through the Office of Navy Research to study something very specific related mm -hmm. to neurological you know, uh, resilience against extreme environments, you know, of the under underwater environment. But uh, in the process of looking at something that's neuroprotective, we want to find something that's neuroprotective that can also enhance physical and cognitive performance. So I can kind of throw in that angle there, <laughs> right. you know, because you don't want to use an anti-seizure drug that's going to impair physical performance. So so from my perspective, we can do some work on, you know, performance and stuff. Uh so the study involved, to answer your question, the study involving uh, Western diet versus ketogenic diet in advanced athletes or lifters and looking at, uh, basically looking at this body composition and, and well, blood work and also strength. Um, that study, if people can do one, one university may be able to do a study three times cheaper than another. Mm -hmm. uh, the, stu the study, that particular study would run roughly between 100 to 150,000. And that's a pretty, that's being very resourceful. So that's like hardly paying the guy. The guys, you know, don't even get paid. Like you get them supplements, you give them a place to train and you basically say, we're going to do all your blood work for you and everything. Uh, so the participants really wouldn't get a much of a stipend, uh, you know, and a lot of it is kind of undergrads that are doing it for their uh, participating in, you know, recording data and, and things like that uh, and ensuring that, you know, that all the participants in the study are doing what they're supposed to do. And then you usually have, you know, maybe PhDs overseeing it you know, one or two PhD students who have uh, money from either the university or another grant, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so these are the ways, you know, we have to run these kind of studies. Whereas if it was like a, a cancer, an NIH funded cancer grant or a Department of Defense grant would involve uh, just a lot more, a lot more work. This particular study, it, it comes from you know, uh, from funds where uh, the school really doesn't ask for much indirect money, uh, overhead coverage, okay. really. So so to do this kind of research, what I'm trying to say is that you really have to be resourceful and uh, and you have to kind of, from my perspective, I think it's great if you know, we can make bodybuilders bigger and stronger. That, that That's a great thing. But if the carryover effect, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in the carryover effect it can have for other diseases. So, uh, you know, sarcopenia, age-related yeah. sarcopenia. It's funny, that was the first thing uh, coming to my mind too. <laughs> yeah, cancer, cachexia. Uh, there's, you know, uh, neurological diseases like motor neuron diseases mm -hmm. that they, the – the progression of the pathology is directly due to a loss in lean body mass and things like, you know, uh, MS and ALS are two things that I'm interested in actually study do ALS research. And we're trying to target that. We're trying to look at not only, you know, anabolic processes, but also anti-catabolic strategies. So I'm always, as we do this research, I'm thinking, wow, the implications of this can go above and beyond, you know, just strength training. Right. And uh, 
and there's not a lot of like ALS researchers or cancer researchers that are even looking into, uh, you know, anti metabolic therapies that would mm -hmm. preserve muscle and preserve lean body mass. And if you look at the track of the disease and the pathology and what the people ultimately succumb to, it's directly proportional to skeletal, you know, lean body mass. And, you know, when that, when they waste away, that's usually, you know, leads to their demise. So a strategy to counteract that can be really effective. And it also, I think our, our bodies, you know, our lean body mass and our skeletal muscle are, is a really good index of our overall health. Mm -hmm. So our overall metabolic health, your, your skeletal muscle is like the main metabolic organ and it, and it really plays a big role in regulating a lot of other metabolic biomarkers like your blood glucose, for example, mm -hmm. you know, is, if you're wasting away, you're going to have a lot of, a lot of problems. I mean, you're releasing amino acids into the system and that's going to cause liver and kidney stress. And mm -hmm. so I, I'm looking at this study and kind of extending it to other things that I'm involved in. Right. Um, and, and this is, and, and then, yeah, I was yeah, going to say, go you've got a, couple interesting points here that I always kind of usually bring up and that's one is that you know I got I, I kind of was able to get into this industry and start pushing in the direction of health by going after athletes first and I always thought about it like yeah. the old days of IndyCar racing you know a lot of the technology and you might not even think of it as technology anymore but you know a lot of the features that we have on our standard vehicles today back in the day that was you know pioneered and engineered in the racing environment uh you know, and a really common mm -hmm. example of that is the rear view mirror on our windows in our car. That was the first yeah. use of that was like in a 1950s IndyCar race. You know, it was a long time ago and they wanted to see what was going on in the field behind them. And, you know, now that's kind of standard safety equipment on our car. And I kind of see the same way you, if you can test these things in high performance environments, it can really give you a lot of insight into the body in general, because we're already so many standard deviations out you know, we can see the extreme effects of some of these things. And at least it gives us a direction to look in when we're looking at, you know, say somebody who's sedentary or somebody who's experiencing sarcopenia. Um, so, you know, it, it gives us that perspective. It at least gives us some direction to go in. And another one that rings incredibly true is, you know, I used to be much, much bigger, you know, at my biggest, I was, you know, 270, around eight, 9% body fat. and you know, now I'm 220 and carry around the same body fat percentage, but I've been at that for a long time. And, you know, what I found is, uh, you know, being a, the one thing I always focus on is my diet, which is very, very low carbohydrate most of the time, because I don't really train much anymore. You know, my goals are totally different. You know, I get into the gym once a week or something like that. And everybody always complains that every time they see me, they're like, how are you holding so much muscle mass? you know, you haven't, your mm -hmm. muscle mass hasn't changed in years. And I know you work out like once a month and they get pissed off at me. I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not work out all the time, but I'm focused on my diet pretty much all the time. And that was one of the yeah. things always appealing about a ketogenic diet is the one thing it repeatedly showed is that, you know, it, it really can be anti-catabolic as far as your muscle tissue is. And And, yeah. you know, if you practice it long enough and you do stay out of the gym for some reason, which you know, I, I try to pick it up every once in a while, 
you can really see the benefits of that. You know, I, I do hold a lot of my mm-hmm. muscle mass and I don't waste away very easily. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I pretty much attribute that to my diet more than anything else. Cause it's obviously not cause I'm working out all the time. That's a great point. I mean, I have the exact same experience, you know, I could take a week or two off cause I have to travel for work. And, uh, and if your body is, is used to like, I guess you probably used to eat the same way, like six meals a day, you know, (laughs) chicken and rice and fish and rice, your body becomes, you know, it used to that level of calorie and carbohydrate consumption. And, uh, and now my meal frequency is way down, like, you know, two meals a day, sometimes one meal a day, Uh, but usually I try to get three now. And if I was to go to, you know, from the the routine I used to have and take time off and then come back after a week or, or two, uh, after two weeks, I'd be really wasted. <laughs> right. And really. And whereas, you know, I, I don't, I don't, don't seem to miss a beat when I'm out of the gym and I kind of know, you know, you know, your body, you learn what you got to do to, to stay strong. And, and, you know, you, you just have this, like, you know, as you build strength and maintain it, it becomes a lot easier to maintain as you know, you're, you're aware of. So you basically know what you got to do to maintain your strength. And if you can get in the gym and just kind of deadlift once a week, you can maintain a lot of strength just by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Like you said, how little it takes once you get there. And you know, my, my question always is, okay, how much time did I waste with my diet and the wrong training when I was younger? to get to that place. And that that's always going to be a big question for me is like, could I have done so much better if I knew then all the things that I know now, could I have spent less time in the gym? Could I have spent less time focusing on my food? Could I, you know, enjoyed, you know, to be honest, yeah, people have these stories about college and I was on the show with uh, Eva Tordokens a couple weeks ago and she's like, Oh, you know, I'm sure you've had the experience of where you were up all night and you got drunk at a party. And then, you know, the next day I'm like, uh, actually I never had that experience in college or grad school. (laughs) I was always focused on academics and working out and eating. Yeah. Uh, so (laughs) I'm just wondering how much, how much better or different would my life have been if I just knew the things I knew now? It's it's always, I'm always going to wonder that. And the more I learn, the more I'm like, man, I was just, I just feel so stupid the way I used to do things, uh, you mm-hmm. know, you compared to now. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. I remember having a preoccupation with food, especially when I was in college. I mean, I would, I would put, uh, you know, chicken, frozen chicken breasts in my pants if I had, you know, cargo pants and I'd be <laughs> carrying around protein. And I, I literally, I remember, you know, having dreams or nightmares, I guess that, you know, where I would be someplace and, and just wouldn't have food for like the day or like, what am I going to do? You know, that was like a source of stress when I was younger. And now, you know, that, that, that's not an issue, but, uh, I think, you know, when you're younger too, your metabolism is kind of, you know, on fire and you're just doing more. And, uh, but I, I just felt that I had to eat that way. That's what you had to do. You had to get in, you know, yeah. If everyone was doing six meals a day, I would try to get eight because I felt I needed I needed more to get bigger, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I would do the exact same yeah. thing. I there was a a period it's in anti-social my life antisocial behavior, really. Yeah, and you know there was a period in my life where I would set my alarm so it went off every three hours in the middle of the night so I could get up and get even more <laughs> meals in. You know, I was just and you. It sounds like you had almost the same experience. You just you become so yeah. focused on food. And, you know, something really starts to go wrong with your wiring, I think, when you become that obsessed about food. And 
and not in an yeah. emotional way. I didn't have any emotional tie to food whatsoever. It was literally, you know, this was the tool I thought I a had means to, use. to an end. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, like yeah. I said, now life is so much easier. If, if I could just go back and talk to myself from them and try to convince myself how easy life could be in relation to food, there's no way I would have believed it. I would have just said I was full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Same, same experience here. Like I could have got by and probably missed out on a lot of things because mm -hmm. of, I didn't want to venture out away from my food source. Right. Right. <laughs> And that, you know, that, that's another conversation uh, I actually had recently. And that was, you know, when we're younger, there, the body's capacity, you know, it's metabolism, metabolism is supercharged. Uh, you've got a greater capacity for repair. Um, you probably have greater metabolic flexibility. I mean, there's a lot of things you've got going for you when you're young. Um, and so maybe we didn't get the results we got because of all the work we did. We got some of those results in spite of all that work that we did. You know, our body was just young and could, yeah. could really overcompensate for a lot of that. And, you know, now that we're older, we keep thinking back to those old days of how we used to do things. But yet, you know, our body doesn't recover as well. And so I just kind of wanted your thoughts. Like if if you had, say, just trained and eaten in the right ways when you were younger, you think that mm -hmm. would ever decrease as you get older? Like. What we're seeing now as we're older and our work capacity and our diet and things like that, if we had done that through our entire lives, do you think we'd see a big change in either performance or, um, you know, a lot of parameters? Do you, do you think there'd be a big change that you'd notice? Whereas now, you know, you notice your strength goes down, your endurance goes down. Um, but if you trained at the right level when you were younger, do you think that would stay pretty mm -hmm. consistent through your life? I think so. I, I definitely think I could have reaped more gains if I know what I know now. And, uh, and what I also had available back then was time, <laughs> which I don't have as much now. Uh, I think I definitely could have implemented a lot of things that I, concepts that I understand now, not only just nutrition, but also, you know, in powerlifting periodization. And, mm -hmm. and there's a number of things that I think I, I would, I would love to go back and to apply, uh, when I was younger. And I think it would, it would definitely carry over, you know, uh, with age. Um, I probably definitely could have cut my meal frequency. I think it probably would have helped me too. Uh, I do remember being sore a lot. I was probably training too heavy too often. So if I would have periodized, I would have probably made a lot better gains. Um, and, and probably bumped up, although I'm not a big fan of high volume, high frequency, I think at a younger age, I think I could have done, uh, cycles where I could have, uh, you know, done that periodized, periodized in a way that I could have reaped a lot of benefits from bumping up to a higher volume mm -hmm. in certain points. Uh, and then combining that, you know, and uh, I don't know how I would approach that nutritionally how it would differ with my training, but, uh, I definitely, you know, I was pretty high carb for a while. And I, looking back now, I have old training journals going back from 1992, I think, or 91 or 92. Wow. And what I ate and what I've, yeah, I just look at it. Wow. If I would have just this differently or that differently or just, yeah, mixed up my training in this way. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, 
I could implement what I'm talking about now and the things that we're talking about. Uh, young guys coming into this can take some of these concepts and apply them and reap the benefits later on in life. I think if, if that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely for sure. Exactly what I'm, what I'm trying to say. It's really hard. I know I wouldn't have listened when I was younger and that's, that's really the hard thing to tap into is to try to convince somebody. It's like, look, you know, I know everything's going great now, but you're in your twenties and you've got possibly another 60 years after that. You, you might want to think about how things are going to go when you're older. You know, I'm almost 40 years old and definitely in my twenties, you know, my thought was if I live past 30, then man, I'm in old age, but at, yeah. at, <laughs> at 40 years old, I don't feel old. And I, I would like to hold on to this all the way until 80. You know, if I'm 80 and still don't feel yeah. old, but drop dead the next day, that's totally fine with me. Um, and, and I think I could have done a better job of that had I paid attention to what I was doing to myself when I was younger. Um, but, you know, yeah. I, I just, I didn't either didn't know or wouldn't have considered that for sure. Yeah. Well, the kids today, oh, that feels weird saying that, like I'm really over the hill. But <laughs> the kids how, today, how old are they you, have, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, uh, 38. Oh, okay. So you're, you're just a, yeah. you're right around there. Not a spring chicken. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but just think about it today. Just think about when you were, you know, 17, 18 and just think about, you know, the internet, if the internet was available, just the amount of information that's out there available, uh, which we didn't have. I had magazines. I remember like muscle media 2000. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that? I Don't, do. So, yeah. Uh, that was like, I used to wait for it, you know, right. that was a good magazine watch for the mailman to come. Cause <laughs> I think it's going to come today. I think it's going to come today. Like I was so excited when I got that. And that was like the source of information, you know, mm-hmm. and I would, uh, just try to absorb everything I could with the limited amount of resources that were available, which were the bodybuilding magazines, which right. was not really a great source. But, uh, but nowadays, I mean, there's so much information out there and, and if kids coming up can tap the right sources, uh, like I'm really, I, I'm a good friend of Lane Norton, but also just a personal fan, fan of the way he approaches training and bodybuilding. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I like to, and when I have young kids that come up to me, you know, I'll send them, uh, your way, I'll send them Lane's way. And there's a, a list of people that I recommend because getting into this, if you fall into kind of the wrong methodology or wrong people or methodology or whatever, you can really screw yourself up, I think, and set yourself up for some problems. So I, I'm always excited in the gym and, and, you know, when, when young guys come up to me and I feel like I'm doing a a good thing by steering them in the right direction. And I kind of wish I had that mentorship growing up, but I think I, you know, we all have to make our mistakes. And I think, you know, I've learned from the mistakes I made in the past. And, but I think uh, there's, there's a lot of good information out there. if Kids seek the right channels. Yeah. for it yeah it's and also a lot of stuff uh i guess which wasn't so much available when i was younger in the drug department oh, you know, with the yeah. internet and everything they just have you can pretty much get access to anything which is scary right uh, yeah especially with you know that's the one place where even knowledgeable people who've had a lot of experience with a lot of athletes just you know don't want to talk about it and uh, completely yeah. understand why but it's such a disservice because like you said, so much of that stuff is available and, you know, young kids who are looking for that edge are, you know, probably going to try something at some point. And the fact that there is no reliable information or that you can't tell if it's reliable is kind of scary to me. You know, it, 
it just seems like it would be a better environment if the laws were like they were pre-80s, where you there were huge penalties and jail time if you were a dealer. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you were a user, it's basically just got confiscated, no big deal. Um, I And yeah. that also led to a proliferation of information, whether it was good information back then, you know, maybe is debatable, but I think there were a lot more people willing to talk about it at the time. And now nobody's willing to talk about it. Shoot. Lance Armstrong went through what, like a 12 year career lying about it uh, for all kinds of various reasons. And, uh, you know, and and basically what's, what's funny is, you know, everybody he raced against over those, you know, 10, 12 years, essentially what, including his comeback, you know, they all got busted for drug use too. So, you know, yeah. at one point or another, it's like, you know, everybody's doing it. Why don't we just talk about it and make it a legitimate part of the sport so people don't get hurt? Um, people don't yeah. do things they don't understand, don't wreck their body with consequences that might not show up for 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but that, yeah. that's just kind of my opinion on it. I'd rather people be safe than stupid. Yeah. Yeah. If I had a kid, I probably would steer him away from competitive bodybuilding. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. Definitely get him lifting. You know, I wouldn't mm-hmm. force him into anything, but definitely advocate for lifting. But competitive bodybuilding, you know, I, I don't think it's the healthiest sport. No, it's natural not. or unnatural. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. The, just the mental aspects of it. I, I think you have to be yeah. mentally and emotionally unhealthy to be a dedicated bodybuilder, whether that's natural or or enhance there's there's just a pathology there that you've got to go down to to really do that and you know i think the internet's a good point like you and i grew up before there was an internet so we know this and i started looking at medical research uh, my senior year of high school so you know people can't comprehend how different that was i had to go to a medical library luckily i lived by a really good medical library uh, I would find articles. I didn't understand what those articles were talking about. So then I had to go find other journals to look up what they were talking about. And, you know, I'm basically in a library for an entire day making photocopies of journal after journal after journal. And that's my only source of information. There, there wasn't even a Wikipedia where I could at least get a little bit of a grasp on what they might be talking about. I had to dig through yeah. a ton of stuff. And, you know, the world, it's such a different world that way. And, you know, I don't think people appreciate what, what it took back in the day and, Mm -hmm. and how dangerous it is today, because now there's just like, you're bombarded by study after study that somebody talks about on their blog and you don't go read the study. Mm -hmm. So you don't know if they understand what's, what it's saying. Uh, And, you know, I, I think the, the internet's kind of a double-edged sword. Sure. It's a great new source of highly available information, but at the same time, that gives a lot of people who have no comprehension of what's really being said talking about that research and, uh, you know, yeah. causes many problems as benefits. It's, it's one reason I do this podcast is so that I can talk to experts and make sure that I understand and have the right context for some of the things I read. Because, you know, sometimes, as you've noticed from our conversations, I like to extrapolate and say, you know, is that, is that something possible and something that we might want to look at? And I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I could be dead wrong. I could be understanding it in the wrong context. Um, so again, th- these podcasts mm-hmm. are just about as much for me as they are for my audience. Yeah. I've had a lot of, I had so many people contact me, you know, from your podcast and Ben Greenfield and Dave Astor. I gave a lot of podcasts and I'm really, 
you know, glad I decided to do these podcasts because a lot of people are, are getting getting information, uh, you know, that were fans of, of your podcast. And mm-hmm. um, and they had, I guess, what they've heard on other shows they would ask me about. And I had to go back and, and listen to that podcast mm-hmm. just to get an understanding of what they're talking about. Uh, it, it's a really great source of information. And I think people tend to listen to it, you know, and they're just kind of doing their thing around the house or driving in their car or whatever. It's The information is definitely getting to them. And, uh, and I just see that, you know, podcasts are a great way to, to get the information out. Um, so yeah, you're doing definitely doing a great service here. And, and I think what I've seen too, is a lot of undergrads or guys going into college, just getting very interested into the science of bodybuilding and the science of, uh, science in general, really. And it gets them actually wanting to read the studies, uh, and, and getting them interested into the scientific process for bringing out the truth as to, you know, what could be, what could be implemented in, in their, in not only in their training, but their personal health too. And, uh, and, and that was my story too. I just, bodybuilding was kind of a means to, uh, that I would, like you, I spent time in a medical library and, and digging through journals and, and it got me to really appreciate biology and to really, you know, go into that field, go into physiology and biology and, and just try to get a firm foundation of, of the science mm-hmm. to really understand and appreciate um, kind of what we could do as far as driving the science. And at this point, you know, my career now driving the innovation of, of new new technologies that can push the limits of human performance is what I'm really fascinated with and, and having that foundation of knowledge, which was originally sparked by training, by bodybuilding is is something I think a lot of people are going through now, just with the guys that I talk to Mm -hmm. now that are really getting into it and wanting, you know, I get a lot of, a lot of people contact me and just want, (laughs) want a position in the lab, you know, they're, can I just do research in the lab? It's like, uh, I get a couple a day, every day. (laughs) That's, that's no, that, gonna make that's, you feel that's pretty great good, to though. hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I almost want to do that. I almost after our conversations every time, I'm just like, you know, is there any way I could come work for you just for a few months, just just to be in the environment <laughs> and see see what's going on at the cutting edge? Because of course, you know, as a researcher, you're always you know about all this stuff. You know, six months before it's really out there, or you know, even possibly a year before mm-hmm. it's going to make a big impact anywhere. So it's you know, I'm I'm always excited to try to learn about you know, what's coming up and what are the applications and how does that correlate with everything else we know. I just I love putting all of those things into context and, and trying to see how they fit together in every new study, whether it's with athletes or whether it's with diabetics or whether it's with some isolated genetic population from Southern America. You know, all of these <laughs> things fill in a lot of gaps. And you know, people think we know so much about the body. We still don't know a vast amount uh, about the body. I mean, there's still so many unanswered questions. So as much as we learn, you know, I, I would bet we're just on the cusp of an explosion of knowledge because of the tools that are out there, um, the renewed interest in different metabolic pathways, different dietary regimes. You know, this is this is really an exciting time to be in the field like yourself or to be paying attention to it and, and trying to keep up. I just, 
you know, I've never been so excited about all the information coming out and how it comes together and how we can see all these correlations now. And um, can mm-hmm. these correlations lead us to a new question that we weren't even thinking of before? You know, like it, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's really an exciting time. This is, you know, kind of like the gilded age of, of biological and physiological research in, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, with that in mind, I think another exciting kind of uh, frontier, if you will, is just uh, quantifying yourself, like, you mm-hmm. know, uh, having various apps and, uh, like there's a heart rate variability monitor that you can strap on, you know, mm-hmm. and there's an app for your iPod. So you can do that. I mean, measuring, I think in the future, there'll be devices where we can get a drop of blood and look at a whole spectrum uh, and basically just do metabolomics <laughs> and basically look at, you know, not only blood ketones and, and glucose, but uh, a variety of other energy intermediates and give you a snapshot, a metabolic profile at that at that time point. I think we're moving in that direction. Uh, I, I know we are with the warfighter because you can put a warfighter into, you know, uh, an advanced fighter jet and there's like, you know, 2000 things uh, reporting on actually what's happening in the fighter jet right in front of you. Mm-hmm. But the limitation of that fighter jet is the pilot inside, right. like, and being able to withstand the G forces or the, or the hypoxia high altitude. Mm-hmm. And the military spent very little time understanding, you know, the physiology of the warfighter in the undersea environment, you know, and NASA and in the space environment or whatever. And they're really interested you know, in, uh, in being able to instrument the warfighter in a way that gives physiological feedback and biochemical feedback from the blood. And, you know, so there's physiological and biochemical biomarkers that are being assessed in real time. And that feedback can go back to the person or, you know, some centralized location where they can tell the guy, oh, you need to do this. You need to adjust your breathing gases or take mm-hmm. this supplement or that supplement. And I think that technology as it's evolving, you know, for use in the warfighter will ultimately be applied to, to normal people <laughs> in everyday life and, and to advanced athletes. Yeah, there is. So that, that's what's so exciting for me to kind of be, I'm kind of at that edge where I'm in contact with the people that are kind of doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And be able to ultimately, I see that in the next 10 years being applied to, to bodybuilding and, and sports and, and just general health. Too. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of, you know, the next frontier I'm waiting for. Because like you said, we're quantifying ourselves. We've got all this data and, you know, there's still very, very few systems that can pool this. Actually, there's no systems that can really pool all of the data you might want to record and give you the right feedback and say, oh, well, according to all these parameters, your activity level, um, blah, 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 here's what you should do right now in this moment. And, you know, we don't have mm-hmm. those systems in place. And, and there's some cool tools like a, a company called uh, Dexcom. They've got these continuous glucose monitoring systems. It's this tiny little transmitter. The needle on mm-hmm. it's, you know, really tiny. You stick it on yourself with a Band-Aid, basically. And you get real-time blood glucose levels, and they're displayed on this little video screen on a device that you carry yep. around. And they're working on an iPhone app. So you can just have your continuous blood mm-hmm. glucose levels on your iPhone uh, here pretty soon. The, the devices are like $1,100 at the moment. Um, but mm-hmm. still, yep. that I've is... I've seen them. Yeah, those, that's like exciting stuff. And that's what we're actually... We gathered a few of those to start sticking on guinea pigs here 
to see what's going on with blood glucose levels for both carbonite dieters and carb backloading dieters. Um, and so far, we've seen a couple things that I didn't expect, like these massive blood glucose spikes in the middle of the night, uh, you know, a couple hours before they wake up, even though they haven't had carbs in four days. Um, so, uh -huh. you know, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, okay, what, what are we missing that caused this blood glucose spike? And they're people I have a lot of contact with. So I know their diet's not, you know, they're not cheating on their diet. So, you know, yeah. it, it raises so many questions. And when we get to the point where we can see that and then automatically say, A, we know what's happening or B, here's what you need to do when you wake up because that happened. Um, that yeah. to me is a very, very exciting thing to, to look forward to. Yeah. Th think about, I mean, the blood glucose, that, that's phenomenal. I mean, for athletes, but especially for diabetics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have a new student of mine uh, will be a PhD student is a type one diabetic and he has, he wears a similar device mm -hmm. uh, and he's, you know, he's interested in the ketogenic diet too. So we're doing, doing some work with him. But, uh, but yeah, just think of a patch that you can put on your skin that has little tiny, you know, nano probes that kind of poke through your skin, but you don't feel it because they're, they're nano and that can look at hormones, metabolites, insulin, IGF-1, lactate, right. blood pH, or even something like uh, caffeine. So that would, you know, be able to sense the level of caffeine in mm -hmm. your blood so you can optimize it. So, you know, if you self-experiment, you can realize I feel great when I have my caffeine levels between this and that when I go right before my workouts. So you can kind of titrate it in to that. And mm -hmm. uh, that I think that technology is in the making and I think will be available to us within the next five years okay. or so. And I think it'll have profound effect on our ability to, uh, to perform, uh, whether it be in the office or, you know, mm -hmm. cognitively or, uh, or in the, in the weight room or out on the track or whatever. I think it's going to be a reality. That's I'm just, the only thing that bothers me about that is that now I'm yeah. so much older than when I could have taken full advantage <laughs> of all those tools. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we're, we're over the hour mark actually quite a bit, but so it's probably a good time yeah. to wrap up the show. But, uh, again, <laughs> very enjoyable, very informative, uh, podcast. You know, I think we covered the spectrum from some pretty technical things to, um, you know, just more general things to think about that it, it's a really good show. Again, thanks for coming on. Um, uh, love chatting with you. Do you have anything you'd like to close with or, or discuss? Yeah, that, that thanks for do? having me on. I think mm -hmm. these thought, you know, it's always very thought provoking talking to you because you really, you're a very cerebral person. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think, you know, I just really enjoy it. I, I just, I want people to, uh, I guess if they take anything, you know, away from this is to, uh, to maybe just give some of the things that we're talking about a try, you know, the ketogenic diet. And I'm a real big fan of self-experimentation, uh, in, you know, within the realms of, but being not doing something because someone said to do it, but to give it an honest try and to do it in the most scientific way possible, uh, to, you know, to assess your feedback on it. And, and I think, cause not, not everything is going to work for everybody. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of really, uh, you know, finding out what works for you and just uh, applying it to whatever goals that you have in a way. And, and really that's what bodybuilders do and, and strength athletes do. But, uh, but there's a lot of people also that just want something written in stone mm -hmm, that they yeah. can just 
take with them and not have to think. <laughs> but right. you're probably not friends with those people or those people probably don't watch this podcast, uh, listen to this podcast. Yeah. No, the, the unfortunate thing is they do. And then they ask like 5 million questions <laughs> over Twitter. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's, I, I get a lot of that too. And they just, they just want to know if they put time and effort into it, they just want to know that they're, you know, doing it the right way. Right. And, uh, I, right. I get a lot of that too, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of my closing thought for this. <laughs> Great. Again, thanks for coming on, uh, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, everybody. We'll have links to every place you can find him and his information uh, below the podcast. So thanks again, everyone, for tuning in and listening. And that's another episode of Body IOFM. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.